You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Beauty Translated Season 3 is coming soon with what? A second host? I'm Carmen Laurent, and this season I am joined full-time by world-renowned Janie Danger. Janie, what are we talking about in season three? We're talking about life, Carmen. Beauty Translated is about the many fragmented lives spreading across this rich tapestry of the trans experience. And the all-new Beauty Translated love line at... 678-561-2785. Listen to Beauty Translated Season 3 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Alec Baldwin. This past season on my podcast, Here's the Thing, I spoke with more actors, musicians, policymakers, and so many other fascinating people, like jazz bassist Christian McBride. Jazz is based on improvisation, but there's very much a form to it. You have a conversation based on that melody and those chord changes. So it's kind of like giving someone a topic and say, okay, talk about this. Listen to the new season of Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Bruce Bozzi. On the last season of Table for Two, we had some good times with some of the best guests you could possibly ask for. Table for Two is a bit different from other interview shows. We sit down at a great restaurant for a meal, and the stories start flowing. We're back for a second season. We'll be breaking bread with Colin Jost, Michael Mann, Divine Joy Randolph, just to name a few. Listen and subscribe to Table for Two on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And shockingly, Jim Jordan is embarrassing himself as head of the Judiciary Committee. We have one hell of a show today. MSNBC political analyst Cornell Belcher stops by to talk about the bias the press has when covering VP Kamala Harris. Then we'll talk to actress and podcast host host Busy Phillips about her activism and how the world of celebrity has changed. But first, we have NPR's Robin Farzad. Welcome to Fast Politics, Robin. Thank you. Thank you for having me on again. I think you guys are making a mistake. I see Nancy Pelosi, Brian <laughs> Stelter, and then wait for it, Robin <laughs> Farzad. Uh, what, what, did Yakov Smirnoff cancel on you or something? What happened? <laughs> well, it's a different kind of... Uh, we have all different people talking about all different things. Sure. And, you know, the truth is we need to talk about that jobs report. And as much as I love, you know, Nancy Pelosi, she's not.
not. Well, I mean, actually, she'd be great to talk about it, too. But I would love to talk to you about those jobs numbers last week because they were kind of blockbuster. It just blew everybody away. I mean, we had all, you know, in in psychological terms, the self-fulfilling prophecy of recession. It was supposed to be fait accompli. And then you just have a number that just blows all estimates out of the water. Now, obviously, that's great. And the White House can run victory laps around it. Not that you need a much lower unemployment rate than where we are now. I mean, vis-a-vis the lowest since 1969. But the flip side of that is that, you know, Jerome Powell and the Fed are going to become much more cautious about keeping rates where they are. They're going to go ever higher. Because they did a half point. So there's still anxiety. Right. I mean, the problem is there is this push and pull, right? There's anxiety about the economy getting too hot and that encouraging inflation. So the Fed, whenever there are good economic numbers, there's immediately this anxiety that the Fed is going to raise rates. In a perfect world, you could have a soft landing where it's not too hot, not too cold. I think, you know, when Jerome Powell puts his head down on the pillow at night, he imagines this a scenario of maybe <laughs> 3% inflation and 4.5% unemployment if there were a neat trade-off. I'm not sure it works that way. At least if we look back to the early 80s and Paul Volcker, you had to crash the economy and send it into a deep recession indeed to, to kill inflation, the kinds that we saw of double digits 40 years ago. And the concern was that this Fed would have to do the same thing. Maybe, just maybe it won't have to. Oh, interesting. I mean, where do you think this goes now? My mind has been on something that I think no one in either party really wants to mention much is we talk about the Fed taking interest rates to zero, but how often do we talk about PPP and the excesses and the profligacy of PPP? I think that so much money was pumped into the economy with no questions asked. And many small and medium-sized businesses still have that some of that money stockpiled in their cash. And that's why it's so hard to kill inflation. I think that combined with 0% interest rate policy and all the fear of missing out in the pandemic has led to this just really long, deep inflation that we're feeling. And we're still way too high for comfort. I think the Fed wants to get to 2% and we're maybe at three times that right now. And and the question is, how much do we have to exact pain on the economy in terms of interest rate hikes until the economy cries uncle and says, all right, you got me. That's enough. Leave me alone. Yeah, that is a really good question, I think. So it was a half a mil, a little more than half a million. The expectation was about half of that, all right? I think half of that, a little less than half of that, it completely blew everybody away. And you saw the stock market sell off initially and afterwards, like maybe it's not bad because we can have this idea of a soft landing. Maybe the Fed will have one or two quarter point hikes left in it and then we'll get to what's called, you know, terminal interest rate level. <laughs> what does that mean? That sounds bad for you. Unhealthy. Yeah. The peak level where we get interest rates at this time, is it five and a half percent? Is it five and a quarter percent? I mean, again, we were at zero interest rate policy and they had to hike by so, so many chunky increments last year that I think the market just wants to have an end game in sight. So I want to talk to you about that for a second, because one of the consequences of these higher interest rates is that it kills the home buying market. Yes, but in uh, I guess arguably the home buying market got so out of control and it's still out of control for first time buyers. I mean, there was so much speculation and FOMO and people suddenly fetishizing housing. We were staying at home. We're like, no, I'm not going to downsize. Right. In fact, I'm going to put an addition <laughs> right. on an office, an alcove, and I'm going to buy a vacation home. Right. I'm going to buy something in Aspen, in South Florida, in Coral Gables. Right. And that is really crowded out. And, and this is almost sounds like a trope. I mean, millennial buyers, younger buyers who have no right. hope of kind of hitting the ask. 
you know, housing prices were up, I think, during the pandemic by 20 to 25 percent. And this was supposed to, by design, right. I think if Powell had a lever and he could attack housing and some of the super hot areas of the economy, he would do it. But as you know, it's a blunt instrument, Fed rate hikes, and it takes it could take everything down with it. Right. We have these two paradoxes. We have tight employment, right? So almost full employment or, you know, which drives uh, wages higher, which needs to happen. And then we have these higher interest rates, which drives housing costs lower, which needs to happen. But the process of going through it is quite painful. But you don't have unanimity out there of, you know, wages need to go higher. You might say that from a right. kind of a, a quality and income and standard of living perspective. But if you talk to the Chamber of Commerce or the Club for Growth by people, like you have restaurant people and hospitality people and, and airline people complain that people don't even show up for job interviews, much less take the jobs. And that is inflationary. And maybe we were deluding ourselves for 50 years that we were able to pay people $7 an hour and get away with it and pocket the rest as profit or reinvest it back into the business. Yeah. And, and maybe that's bad, not paying people living wage. It is. But what is the equilibrium? I know the Club for Growth might not say that. Yeah, but you're going to see a lot of residue, a lot of the detritus, detritus of this um, pandemic. You walk into like I, the Einstein's near me used to be just a thriving place where all the parents would meet after drop off or during pickup. And they completely got rid of their interior dining room area because it's strictly become a pickup and DoorDash operation because they just don't have the staff. Right. There's no way people can clean the tables, provision customers, sweep the floors. So all of that excess space, all of the Starbucks that are contorting to move to kind of a drive through model, how permanent is this if businesses right. just try to automate and do so much more with less? Yes, you can only take a 3.5% unemployment rate for granted for so long. Right, 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 right. I mean, it is, it's just a lot of really interesting paradoxes, ultimately. I just don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You know, at, at, uh, when I was at Business Week after 2008, everybody was asking about the new normal. Right. What is normal? When were we at an equilibrium? And when you talk to people, they tell you there was never a normal. It's not like a point in time in history where things were not too hot, not too cold. It was a peacetime thing. There was a peace dividend. We weren't speculating. The Fed wasn't an interest rate policy, you know, zero interest rate. There wasn't a Cuban Missile Crisis or a Cold right, War. Right, right. There's always something that's kind of out of whack. And now we are really experiencing inflation and supply chain disruption and a reluctant workforce that is in no rush to go back. Now, if unemployment shoots up to 8%, I think that would expose very different motivations and people very eager to go back and collect a check. But for the time being, you know, you're seeing so many openings for uh, every avid job taker. It's it's pretty disconcerting, even to the Fed. Interesting. Um, so what are you watching now? I don't know. I mean, that we're, we're kind of in this, everybody thought going into this year, if you polled people, uh, you know, around Christmas or Hanukkah or Thanksgiving, that recession was, was kind of guaranteed. I wonder where commodity prices go. I wonder the extent to which Europe can heal in the wake of, you know, Russia, Ukraine emerging markets. Uh, I, I, I do watch the Fed. I don't fetishize over it. I follow the markets. I feel like um, inflation is a part of life again, at least in my investing and, and you know, business journalism career. I have never truly experienced it. There's always been this cry wolf of inflation. And do prices really go down again? They say they're sticky upwards. Are you going to see uh, menu prices fall? Are you going to see 
You know, right now there's a big battle for the soul of tipping wherever you go to a cafe and they flip the iPad around. Is that going to subside once you, when and if you see unemployment go up? I just think there are a lot of coattails of this pandemic and the many disruptions that we're still trying to, 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 to separate and pick up the pieces of. And I know I mix 3000 metaphors there, but that's just my style. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about EVs and Elon and Twitter because we have to. That's a mandatory question. Yeah. Elon has not killed Twitter, but he has not killed it with Twitter, right? <laughs> He's happy just to keep servicing the debt on this thing. I mean, what do you see? What do you think? How much money can he throw at this? He already paid way too much for it and he fired half the staff. We saw maybe some of the wheels come off again last night. Did you see yesterday what was happening where you tried to post tweets and it said, you've tweeted too many times. I was like, I've tweeted thrice. What do you got against me? You know, right. I'm afraid of these kind of this eyes of, of, of Sauron looking at me whenever I tweet. <laughs> I want to say something sassy, but I don't want to get banned because, you know, I need that nectar. <laughs> so I don't know what he's doing. I know that whatever his net worth was before he bought this $200 billion, even if he has to liquidate Tesla stock to do this, I think just to prove a point, he keeps throwing good money after bad. And I just don't get it. I don't see the business emerging out of this. I don't see the return on investment. It's just a shiny bauble for a, a man with a massive ego, as if it isn't hard enough to do Tesla and SpaceX and kind of be the, the Steve Jobs of his age. He had to go in and buy Twitter. You had to be a big shot, did you? <laughs> as long as he's happy losing money, there's not going to be a day when the debt comes back. I mean, to consider his equity exposure and everything else, he can take out the debt at lower levels and retire some of the banks and the others who were, who right now probably have remorse for putting into this club deal. And he could take them out just for, just for the sake of saying, I have it. Now, if you were a true cold-eyed investor, you'd want to be taking them out at a discount so you could sell it back at, let's say, 100% or whatever it is. There's no evidence that this business has been improved. If anything, all of tech has been impaired since he first came in and, and had this dance with them, I think, in April of 2022. So I don't see what the upshot is for him, just to let all these different characters back on the Twitter. Maybe, just maybe, it doesn't matter when you're that rich if you know, you're marked down by 30 or $40 billion. What does it matter to you? Are you going to, are you going right. to eat less? Are you going to shed any of your homes? Are you going to do less right. of this? But for a while, at least it really ticked off Tesla shareholders because he was, he was taking his eye off the Tesla ball. So now are Tesla shareholders less mad and why? The stock is back up after it, it cratered. I think it had a good report. But again, you know, how much of this stuff, how much of how much of, of, of Elon Musk is tweeting about Twitter versus Tesla, which is his core knitting and SpaceX. I think that is the concern. And honestly, Twitter, for as sticky as it is for all of us, it was never a great business. It was never banking right. anywhere near what Meta Facebook and Google and Apple were doing. And I don't know how you reinvent that into a good business. There was this idea, maybe you could turn it into a mega app and it could have payments and photo sharing and everything into it. But I, I'm not all that sure anybody could have pulled it off. But then again, he didn't have to come in and bid so much for it to leave him no room for maneuver. So, you know, you break it, you buy it, you own it. But I just want to keep going with this for a minute. Doesn't Tesla seem like largely overvalued considering that now a lot of that EV technology is, I mean, if you could buy a Tesla or you could buy a Chevy Volt, 
Right. Yeah, but the Tesla is far preferable. I mean, you know, back back you remember the Geo Metro, the Chevy Volt, everything. I think the airport where I live has a little sign by the parking garage that says you are not allowed to park a Chevy Bolt in here because it's a fire risk. I mean, that's the worst kind of advertising right. for General Motors ever. But wait, is it a fire risk? There was something that happened with their batteries and a fire risk that they had to have in a recall. Tesla is still worth seven hundred billion dollars. It's perceived to have a six or seven year head start ahead of all of the legacy car makers. It's not like you were ever settling if you bought a Tesla. It wasn't like a Geo Metro or a Yugo. It's an elite right. car. And it feels like you're still settling with some of these other vehicles. I think Ford has made enormous strides with its Mustang. There's still a war for, for range. You're seeing Rivian, some of the giant pickup trucks come out for it. But it's still a perception of kind of, you know, Dr. Pepper versus Mr. Pibb, if you will. I understand the idea of that it's a premium product, but the valuation is so high. And also Tesla has had its own problems with spontaneous fires. So, I mean, isn't there a world where Mercedes just starts making EVs and then Tesla goes away? I mean, I'm just this is I'm just pushing because it is such an expensive company. True. They call it the innovator's dilemma. Why didn't Microsoft invent the first smartphone? Why didn't Microsoft see mobile coming? Why didn't Sony, the parent of the Walkman, invent the iPod? And can you expect these guys who have a hundred years of addiction to the internal combustion engine and the fossil fuel industrial complex and their supply chains to overnight just kind of shift to a vehicle like a Tesla, which has far fewer parts, which is software and battery intensive? That's culturally just not in their blood. And they can advertise about it as much as they want on the Super Bowl. But again, they're not the ones... I mean, how many Sony products do you have in your house right now versus Apple products, right? Right. It's an innovator's dilemma and it's a self-disruptor's dilemma. They, they can advertise about it. But I'm sure if you get a bunch of beers into the CEOs of Ford and GM and, and the other one, which is called Stellantis, this is what's left of Chrysler, which merged with some you know, European car makers, they would much rather stretch out their runway by selling as many ginormous gas guzzlers as possible right now. I mean, you're advertising on the Super Bowl about the electric future, but you can't get enough of Ford F-150 sales or these GM super SUVs or Suburbans that are put together out of Arlington, Texas. And that's just brutally hard to disrupt. That's your profit center. And Wall Street is judging you heavily on quarter-to-quarter profitability, where, where Tesla's mostly getting a pass because it has this charismatic CEO that has what they called with, with Steve Jobs had a reality distortion force field. So I think there's an asymmetry to it, to be honest. Wait, what? I mean, I, I just, I think you're giving Elon too much credit. The market's giving him too much credit. Ford plus GM combined is worth a little over $100 billion. Tesla is worth $700 billion. Every no, short seller has been trying to short it for forever. Right. And the market is paying for some sort of future that the big three, the big two and a half are not able to convince the market to pay up for right now. I agree with you. If they can come up, if someone could come up with a killer app, like I got a 600 mile range car, you're going to lust after it. People are going to love it. It's going to pull up at the Oscars and everything. It's going to be amazing. And I could sell it for 35 or 40 grand profitably. Then you would see Tesla's stock fall. If Apple came out suddenly the, the, the following morning and said, we are going to have the Apple EV, you're going to see all of these fanboys and fangirls flock into it and Tesla stock will fall. Until then, Tesla is the industry standard for EV. It has at least a five-year head start. And for a while, people were paying up more than a trillion dollars in market value for that. A lot of that sold off last year when Musk was distracted with Twitter. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, that's where we are. So interesting. Will you please come back? I love it. And in fact, I have a, I have a new jingle for you. If you guys, you know, if your producer <laughs> wants to excerpt it and use it, I won't charge royalties or anything. So wait for it. Three, two, one. Jong, 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 jong. <laughs> Yo, no, it's not going to work. Cutting. No, no, that's going to get the cut. Uh, Darn. That's definitely getting the cut. I wah, thought you, wah, then you know what? Wah. Cut it. Five, four, you, three, two, you, one. <laughs> you tit, you always a delight and you must come back. Thank you. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts beauty translated season three is coming soon with What? A second host? I'm Carmen Laurent, and this season I am joined full-time by world-renowned Janie Danger. Janie, what are we talking about in season three? We're talking about life, Carmen. Beauty Translated is about the many fragmented lives spreading across this rich tapestry of the trans experience. Janie, this sounds like an all-new format. Podcasting 2 is finally here. 
thoughtful perspectives on current events, stunning, sexy, bold interviews with an all-star lineup of guests, and the all-new Beauty Translated Love Line, the first ever. Be a part of the Beauty Translated Transcendental Podcasting Experience by calling our helpline at... 678-561-2785 For any problem you may have we will do our best to make it worse Listen to Beauty Translated Season 3 on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Bye Bye Cornell Belcher is president of Brilliant Corners Research and Strategies and an MSNBC political analyst Welcome to Fast Politics, Cornell Belcher. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) You have to say it really fast. (laughs) I wanted to have you on for a number of reasons besides being a fan, but also because you did a video the other day, which is something that's actually quite close to my heart, which is why the media, right wing, mainstream, everybody, uh, continues to be horrendous to the first female black East Indian vice president ever. The highest level a woman has ever gotten in American government. Like you clearly were moved by something. And I wanted to ask you about that. But, but, but you know, it's not even just the, the just the mainstream and, and well, and I put the right, on, you know, aside because they're a hate echo chamber. But but it's also those on the left who are also falling falling into these these sexist tropes and certainly treating the vice president in a way, the first woman vice president in a way that they absolutely didn't treat any man and ask questions of the vice president, this vice president, and demands of this vice president that they just didn't make of any of the the, the over 200 years of of men who's had in this position. No, I mean, that is the the thing that I have been so shocked by. It just strikes me. And I mean, liberals, conservatives, everyone, you know, you know, they say, I mean, the thing that I've heard so much since I've interviewed her and had her on this podcast and also written about her for Vanity Fair is that um, they'll say, I can't put my finger on it. I just don't like her. (laughs) Well, see, that's the thing. Okay, look, it is fair. It's completely fair and in bounds to question policy initiatives. Right. And, okay, I disagree with the Biden administration on a policy initiative. And the vice president was out talking about this policy initiative. But understand, she's the vice president. It's not like these are her policies. And so her job is to support, and this is what I talked about in and in, in, in my video, the job of the vice president is to be the the man beside the man. And for unfortunately, it has been for over 20 years, the man beside the man and to smile and to dote on and to support and then help him try. And unfortunately, it has always been him to help him try to, to sell and move his policies. That's basically the job. But now in the media, they're criticizing her for not showing leadership. <laughs> you know, in spaces that where the president isn't right. They want her to be out in front on certain on issues. And why isn't she out in front on this? And why isn't she talking about this? And one of them criticized her for not showing that the world that she is ready to be leader of the party, much less the United States. And I'm going, oh, my God, 
That's not the job of the president, the vice president, to lead the administration, to be a leader on any of these things. The job is, in fact, to back up the president. And so this criticism that's coming towards her about how she's not out in front on X, Y, and Z sort of liberal issues that so many of them want her so, so, so many of them want her to be out in front on is, you know, to me, it's a double standard that we certainly didn't see them calling out when Biden was president. I can't recall a time where they were going, oh, my God, I wish Biden were out in front on X, Y, and Z issue. You know, right, right, right. That is the like the real question here. And especially because during early days of this presidency, she was accused of pulling the strings. Remember that? Yes. On the right. You know, and I understand in a diabolical political way, I understand what the right was trying to do when they were trying to call her sort of the puppet master, like this old guy who's not in control and is easy to vilify her because one, again, sexism is real in America. It's easy to (laughs) vilify the woman and particularly a woman of color, right? And it is easy to to sort of vilify her and and play into all these race tropes and and sexism tropes around her. So uh, I get it from the right and I understand it from the right. I don't approve of it from the right, but I do understand it from the right is that's how they rile up their base, right? It is is this dark, evil, uh, scary, mean woman who we got to watch out for, right? This is they, yeah. you know, it's a scary, scary black person. I get that. That's that's historical. But what I don't get is is it from the left, and and it and it goes for me. It sort of speaks to how even on the left there is implicit gender bias that we just have to call out uh, because there are folks on the left who are criticizing her for things like, you know, not showing leadership. <laughs> not smiling enough. R- right. And again, those were never critiques that they've made of men over the last 200 plus years because it's not the job of the vice president to be out in front and lead. No, I mean, that is, it, it's such an important issue. And I think that until we are willing to talk about it, we will continually make this mistake as a country. And I think like I think about this a lot because, you know, in the UK, Margaret Thatcher 30 years ago, more. I mean, and we in America just cannot break this misogyny that is preventing us from letting female politicians really lead. No, I I think that's right. And that's such a good point. And you point out, look, most of the Western democracies have had, and and quite frankly, many of those, when you think of India, et cetera, I mean, even in Asia, you know, most of modern democracies have had women leaders. But why is it that this still escapes us here? And I think when you look at the way the double standard that applied to the first woman to, to reach the, this high office and the first woman of color to do it, I think you begin to understand it. And even sort of in Hillary's run, you know, some of the coverage of Hillary, whether it be talking about her hair or how she was dressed, right. it is such an overt double standard. And I think we've got to call it out and we've got to make it not okay for them to treat women differently than how they treat men or they're going to continue to do it. And that, and that was that was my major point is to put is to put sort of at least the mainstream media on notice is that we are going to start calling this out because if we don't call it out, you're going to continue to do it. 
A lot of like straight news reporters were furious about the K-Hive, right? They were really mad that there were people on the internet defending the vice president and that she had these super fans. They were really, really mad. But the reality is that, you know, Bernie had them. You know, there are a lot of politicians have super fans. I mean, Trump had, you know, super fans like you can't believe. And the fact that the this particular group was demonized, I think, does speak to this larger issue of she is held to a completely different standard than male politicians are. Yeah. And it makes it more difficult for women to rise in these positions because of this double standard. When you look at how difficult it has been for for women to rise, particularly in politics. And look, I was watching this this video the other day about the great Nancy Pelosi, you know, who's go down as the, the greatest, you know, speaker in modern American history. There was all of 23 women in Congress when, when Nancy Pelosi uh, arrived there. And there's a lot more now. But look, even now, there's not enough representation, not enough uh, women representatives, it, it, both in Congress and certainly not in the in, in the Senate. And, I, and again, I think what we're seeing leveled in at the vice president is an attribute of this gender bias that makes it so difficult for women to get ahead in politics and have access to power. So last week we had Nancy Pelosi on this podcast. You know, my parents are that age and I know how fragile people in their 80s are. So, you know, I was sort of just horrified and and even shocked that their family thought said that he was going to make a full recovery because when you're at that age, you don't really know if you'll ever, you know what I mean? Right, right. But she said that the thing that got her the most upset was she really worried that women were not going to run because they were worried about their families. Well, yes. And there is a culture, unfortunately, there is a culture of of violence broadly in this country that is second to none. And let, and, look, and look, that's just factual. Yeah. And and we're going to pretend that there's also not a culture of political violence in this country, as I, I was reading Stokely Carmichael's biography of, of Stokely and... Um, and we met this section where where they talk about King's assassination and how deeply you know painful it was for 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 Stokely and how he saw hope you know slipping away and it talked about how Robert Kennedy talked about the violence that had that he had seen you know taken his brother and the violence that had taken King and of course just months later Robert would be killed himself. Right. Yeah. So there's so we, we we try to shove it under the rug, but there's such a history of violence in this country, and and look the we know that that members of Congress are under more assault now than they have been in the past, or more threats coming in against them in, in in the past, and it's sort of the bullying society that I think you know if you are if you are a woman and particularly if you are a mom with 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 a family. You do have to take that in consideration when you think about putting yourself and your family out there in the public spotlight and out there in the public arena because there are vulnerabilities. Yeah. And I just I don't know. I just it, it is such a real problem. And it, I mean, you know, we've only had 11 African-American senators, only two female African-American senators. You know, we have lived in this country where there just is not a fair representation. I want to ask you, what do you think about the South Carolina primary move? I actually like it. 
And look, and as someone who worked for, you know, both of the, uh, you know, the Obama campaign, I have a fondness for Iowa and New Hampshire. It is very reflective of an old style politics, especially in Iowa, the caucuses. I think it's also fair to say that we need more diversity up front in the primaries and we need, you know, more states that are reflective of of how the country looks and reflective of 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 some of some of the broader issues beyond beyond sort of these sort of smaller states and more more agricultural states. I do think that's fair. I but I also understand why Iowa and New Hampshire want to hold on to their very right. <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> yeah, I get I do. it. I get it. Yeah. But I think, you know, when you put when you put South Carolina and you put, you know, Michigan, sort of these these bigger, more diverse states and these in Georgia and these more, you know, industrial states, I think it does help a candidate who's going to be, quite frankly, able to speak to a broader swath of the general electorate. I think it prepares them more to speak to and reach and win a broader swath of the general electorate than Iowa and New Hampshire. But again, I respect a great deal of respect for Iowa and New Hampshire, but I think it was the right move for the for for the party to do. I want to ask you about Biden's polling. Because this is something that to. gets me. <laughs> well, I just don't understand. I truly believe I know you saw this Washington Post ABC poll that came out yes. earlier in the week. I saw it and thought this can't be right. So there was an ABC Washington Post poll that basically showed his approval rating being it showed that no one in the world wants a matchup between Trump and Biden. And then it sort of put together a kind of false equivalency of Biden and Trump. That is my hot take. Um, I, I mean, I, I thought it was wrong. And I wondered why. And again, like we both saw the same pretty excellent State of the Union speech last night. And I just want to know, are the polls wrong? Are we wrong? I mean, what would I mean, do you buy that his popularity numbers are this? We're often looking for the wrong things in polls and we're looking for polls to do something that that polls can't do because we want polls to be crystal balls because because we Americans always want to know the future. That's not a job of a poll. Right. So you take the information that's in a poll that's actionable and you should act on it. Look, the in Washington Post, they are pretty darn good pollsters. Like there's there's a lot of public polls that that are that are that aren't very good, but but the Post is, is is usually pretty good. But that said, look, what do I take from that poll? I take from that poll that there is a large swath of Americans, the majority of Americans, I think, it was sixty percent of Americans or, or more, yeah, who have no idea what the president has done. I think for a lot of us insiders who pay attention to politics a lot, who read the newspaper or read online political articles, you know, several times a day. And, you know, my Twitter feed is full of smart people like you and other (laughs) reporters and what have you. It's easy for us to understand that this president has been transformative in the legislative way, the likes of which we probably haven't seen since LBJ. When you look at the, the the legislation that they were remarkably able to move in just two years and a very tightly divided Congress, it is remarkable. It is a political experience and political gravitas on the part of the president, Pelosi and Schumer that should go down in history. Uh, I mean, for how many years have we heard presidents talk about an infrastructure bill and none of them been able to actually get it done? 
and they got it done with a 50-50 split Senate. So what they've been able to do is fairly remarkable, but the American public, they don't know it. They have no context for it, and all they hear is negative news. So I want to say, so I want to put this in context of two things. One is, I really do, when I do focus groups and listening to Americans around the country, there is a disconnect with Washington because they see the fighting and the negativism and division. And what I hear from them is they they tune it out. They don't want to pay attention to it because it's always bad or sad news and it's always just fighting. So they actually don't have a real grounding and understanding of the tremendous work that President Biden has put in on his behalf and his accomplishments. Because when you get 60% of people saying that they they don't think he's done anything, when he's been one of the most accomplished presidents since LBJ, that's a real problem, right? And it's actionable. And when you see the president and vice president and members of the cabinet spread out like today, like the, the, the presidents in Wisconsin, the vice presidents in Georgia, and that you got cabinet members out in all the parts of the country talking about infrastructure, talking about climate change, right? And talking about their legislation. They've got this information and they're and they're acting on it. But to the second piece of this I, I want to point out is that the Republicans are crazy like, like, they're crazy like foxes. And what I mean by that is they, all this negativism, all this division, all this ugliness they, they constantly drive, it's for a purpose. It is to grow that cynicism about politics. It is to grow this ideal that Washington is broken and nothing can get done. And so I can just tune out. And that's how they win. And I got to tell you right now, it is a real problem that so many Americans are tuning out and so many Americans don't really understand what's happening in Washington and that they're cynical about Washington and, and think Washington is broken and the president isn't doing anything. And in that context, that's how Republicans win. Thanks, Cornell. All right. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I know you, our dear listeners, are very busy and you don't have time to sort through the hundreds of pieces of punditry each week. This is why every week I put together a newsletter of my five favorite articles on politics. If you enjoy the podcast, you will love having this in your inbox every Friday. So sign up at fastpoliticspod.com and click the tab to join our mailing list. That's fastpoliticspod.com. Busy Phillips is an actress and activist and host of Busy is Doing Her Best. Welcome to Fast Politics, Busy. Hey, how are you? We're good. Very excited to have you. Thank you. We were just talking, you were a podcast host, among other things. Yes. One of the things I really have been wanting to talk to you about for a long, long time is your work, your advocacy work around abortion. And I was curious, you know, you come from acting. There's often like a lot of pressure for actors not to be political. I mean, I don't know if you came up in that world that way, but did you feel that? Oh, yeah. No, honey, I came up in the world where I was like, you know, if you didn't do the Maxim Hot 100, you weren't going to have a film career. You know what I mean? Like that was like, I was definitely shut up and hit your mark and you're expendable and don't make waves. And if a guy at on set tells you that they jacked off to you last night, you got to laugh and keep going with your day. So no, I definitely was of the era that taking like real political stands isn't 
a safe thing to do, especially as a woman in the industry. You know, I think that just collectively, that as the all of the tides started turning, I was always a person that was politically active and motivated behind the scenes. I mean, I threw my own fundraisers in my 20s with my friends for different candidates. And I remember going to see Barack Obama speak when he was running for senator, paid to go to some fundraiser in Los Angeles to see this new superstar of the party. And always like gave money to Planned Parenthood, but never was going to be vocal about the fact that I had had an abortion when I was 15 years old or that bodily autonomy is, you know, a right <laughs> and that we all <laughs> that we all deserve. I, you know, again, also though, it's the same. I'm Gen X, I guess. I'm on the younger side, I guess, of Gen X, right? I'm 44 and Jesse is 45. I'm 43, guys. We're in a row. <laughs> okay. Yes. You know, by design, our generation was told that Roe was safe, that this work had been done. And, you know, I was very busy building my career in Los Angeles and traveling for work. And I wasn't also, you know, this is like before the 24-hour news cycle. And then even when it started, we didn't get the, you know, trap laws that were passing in different states and the slow but sure chipping away at the rights. I mean, I just want to get back to this for a second because I do think, like, so we're the same age, me older than you are, but we'll just pretend we're the same age. We but, were all um, in high school at the same time. Right. Do you know what I exactly. mean? Exactly. Yes. But, you know, when I came up, I mean, I think for actresses, there was a real feeling that you weren't supposed to talk about politics. And, you know, this whole men's magazine thing, which, you know, I was writing in magazines back then. And there were these men's magazines. And it's funny because I was watching like an old episode of 30 Rock and they were so disgustingly misogynistic. I mean, to the point where, I mean, just horrific. Yeah, you don't have to tell me. I mean, you know, I was there. I was in one. And it was like, I was like a holdout. I didn't want to do it. And I'm not kidding you when I say I had a general meeting with the head of casting at a big, huge studio. I was on Dawson's Creek at the time. And I wanted a film career. Like, I wanted to do right. movies. And at the very least, I wanted to do another TV show when Dawson's Creek was over. And the head of casting at this studio pulled out multiple issues of Maximum, FHM, and Stuff magazine and said to me, look, I'll be honest with you, every executive every person making creative decisions and signing off, you know, they send me these lists of these girls and they say, let's get her in a movie. When can we put her in? If you don't do one of these, you know, you're just, you're effectively, you know, Jesus. You, you might not have a, the upper hand of, an, of a woman that does. He probably didn't say woman, <laughs> you know, and I was 21 and I'm like, okay, I guess I'll like put on some, a bathing suit and crawl around on the floor of a studio for a couple hours. Yeah. And it's like horrifying in retrospect, you know, that, I mean, that's also why I love being on Girls by Beva too, because we get to skewer that so very specific time um, and culture. But, you know, right. I think that, yeah, no one wanted to hear <laughs> what my views were. <laughs> no, and so I do think it's very brave. So explain to me the thinking of when you came out 
and told the story. Also, 15, I mean, I got sober when I was 19. So I relate to having like a very complicated teenagehood. But to come forward with that story is particularly brave. So how did you make the decision to do it? Well, I actually knew that it was always something I wanted to do, talk about, come forward with. And after sort of the advent of social media and my own Instagram becoming very popular, my Instagram stories, I finally (laughs) got a book deal, which is what I literally had always wanted. I had always wanted to write a book. And part of it was that I thought that that was where I was going to best be able to tell that version of a story as opposed to talking to a reporter (laughs) about it in Stuff Magazine. (laughs) Like, can you imagine? Can you even imagine? Right. No, no. I I remember. And gear. And I mean, they were just, they were just, one was worse than the next. Yes, they were all terrible. So I knew that that was the opportunity that I was going to take in order to talk about my pregnancy and abortion at age 15. You know, and my late night talk show that was on the E! Network for about a year almost was coming out. It coincided with my book coming out. Everything was happening all at once, like as as it does in these things. And I was actually very surprised when my book came out that the story about my abortion didn't get much traction. (laughs) And writing a memoir is a certain kind of therapy and hell, yes. And then releasing it into the world is another that no one can prepare you for. I had sort of, I don't know, I feel like I had really prepared myself for a lot of negative responses to the abortion story. And then all anyone wanted to talk about was like James Franco, (laughs) my relationship from freaks and geeks. I'm sorry. I mean, that like really hurts. And also... I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, it's like it was I'm not sorry. lost on me. You know, the point that I was making in the entire book was just about my experience as a woman growing up at this particular time in history and then being in the entertainment industry during this time in history. Being asked about James Franco. Literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of headlines about my book, my memoir, are about James Franco. Amazing. (laughs) Just like, well, there you go. You can't win. Can't win. Even still. But then, you know, because I had the, the talk show, you know, this is when 2018 and 2019 was when these, like, you know, they started really testing the waters after, you know, they'd gone as far as they could go with these trap laws. And they started passing the extreme abortion bills in different states. And uh, Ohio was one of them. And And you grew up in Ohio, right? Georgia. No, no, no. I I grew up in Arizona, which had, which Which is had their own. Yeah. Right. Shit show of a, of a pre-statehood ban is what they reinstituted right. uh, for a minute in Arizona. But thankfully, that crazy woman didn't win yeah, governor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Carrie Lake. It is Carrie Lake. I didn't want to say her name. I was like literally not saying her name on purpose. Like Voldemort. Right. Don't say it. She is. I don't want her to like be famous. I don't want her to have name recognition. No, she's horrible. But no, it was when Georgia passed their extreme abortion ban and also coupled that with a a story that came out from Ohio about 
a child. Right. No, I remember that story. Yeah. Not the one that the Republicans accused people of making up. This is a different one. This is like 2018, 2019. And the child was my child's age. And all I could think was like, oh my God, that's a little kid. Like that's a little, little, little kid. What's happening? I reached out to like friends of mine who had been like very active in the pro-choice space over the years and that I knew a little bit from that space and uh, asked them what they thought about me talking about my abortion on my show. You know, it's like what we say, right? Like representation matters for moments like for cultural moments like this. And exactly. So we made the decision, um, my showrunner, Casey, my friend who I do my podcast with, uh, Casey and I made the decision. I talked to a bunch of people. I talked to Center for Reaper Rights and Planned Parenthood and, you know, uh, NARAL and just got everyone sort of take on what they feel felt in that moment was an important piece of the messaging, you know, and then we kind of like zeroed in on making it not too long (laughs) because, you know, Lord knows men can talk for 25 minutes about something, but I, we felt like we should keep it under two. And the point that I really wanted to get across is that if you think this isn't going to affect you, it has already. Right. You, you are friends with people, you know, people that need, this is an essential part of healthcare and being a person and controlling your own life and uh, making decisions that are best for you and your family, not because a politician arbitrarily has decided it goes against his religious beliefs and whatever. I mean, we can, you know, we can get into the whole history of that anyway. Were you shocked at the response? I was definitely like prepared for the worst and what I got instead was absolutely the greatest. And I've never felt better. I mean, okay, not hyperbolically. If I only had that talk show for this reason, and that is enough. That was it. That was everything to me. And sometimes I actually think about that because the fact that I even did it and had this idea and wanted to do it is so weird. <laughs> and there is a part of me that thinks like, Oh, you had to do it so that you could do this in this moment. Because after, you know, it, it was a real moment in the in the movement. And like in terms of getting people to pay attention and realize what's happening with the extreme abortion bans. And of course, many people, you know, did not take it seriously or didn't think it would happen to their state or for any number of the and never thought Roe was gonna fall. And also just destigmatizing being able to say, oh, yeah, I had an abortion as well. I mean, I had friends who literally didn't know that the DNCs that they had were abortions. Right. And that's still true. Oh, my God. People getting people to understand that is wild. Yeah. I just wrote a piece a couple weeks ago and it was inspired by talking to Robin Marty. I don't know if you know her. She wrote the Post Row handbook. Mm -hmm. She runs a women's health center in Alabama. And we were talking about, you know, now they can't do abortions there, but they do maternal fetal health and they do early stage pregnancy stuff. And she was telling me she has all these people who have miscarriages and they can't get the treatment for miscarriages and they never put it together. You know, they never put it together. No, they never did. I had a discussion with a friend who had had a lot of fertility issues and had had many 
miscarriages and then because of that had to have the the aftercare the which is considered in all of these places where abortion is effectively illegal to be abortion and they will not do it they won't do it <laughs> and my friend was like arguing with me she's like no that's it's not that's not what it's i'm like honey i literally <laughs> i'm like on the board of these things now like i know i get the emails that aren't just like you donate money emails. I get like the real emails from these people. They're not, they're denying women care. And regardless, you know, of whether it's a choice or medically necessary or rape or incest or like, you know, qualifying this has only done exactly what the men and the leaders of the, you know, anti-choice movement want to do which is make that some some are morally better than others. Like, you don't get to be, you're not the arbiter of that. That's not for you to decide. That is for me and my doctor, my God, my partners, my parents. And stay out of it. Stay out of my body, dude. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And I think that's a really important point. I also do think this idea of sharing our experience to help others. And, you know, I say this as someone who's sober, like is really profound and useful. Yes. And also I am a person who holds space for friends and people who I don't know who it's re-traumatizing for them and they don't want to do it. They don't want to share whatever the experience, whether it's sexual assault or their abortion or their, you know, miscarriage and abortion care after. People have all kinds of feelings about things. But I do know from my own personal experience that sharing my story about my abortion freed me from holding a shame that I didn't even know I was still holding on to. Yeah. Oh, I believe that. That's really interesting. And I think it is important. I mean, I definitely feel that way about sharing my sobriety, you know, I really do get more from sharing it than other people do, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. And I think that part of the piece of the conversation that keeps coming up and then getting missed and then coming up again is this is this empathy piece. And that for us to be able politically or otherwise exist in this states, (laughs) these states, very disparate states with lots of different people with lots of different views we have to be able to hold a bunch of truths at one time and it's not something that political news and you know uh, pundits and like how everything is you know politics how everything's turned into like this sort of game show in our culture it's not something that is encouraged in our society right now but it is the only thing that ever crosses party lines and bridges people together, which is just empathy and storytelling and sharing between each other so that you can understand. And and by the way, you don't even have to understand, but you can at least get a sense of someone else's humanity. Busy Phillips, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, thank you. It was so nice to talk to you. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Junkfast, I heard you were at some fancy dinner last night. I was at a congressional media dinner, and at this dinner was a person who supposedly hates the media 
and does not <laughs> care what they think and thinks they are all liars and cheaters. Get showed up to a thing where they're going to schmooze with the media. Hmm, sounds like them. And her name is Marjorie Taylor Space Lasers Green. <laughs> I think it's really important that we in the mainstream media make a concerted effort not to launder the career of a woman who came to power on QAnon and anti-Semitism. And while she has nice dresses and can go to parties and look like every reasonable person. She's not a reasonable person and she should not be laundered and we cannot treat her like a normal congressperson. And so as she is on her rehabilitation tour, I say this is our moment of fuckery. Do not help rehabilitate Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Yeah. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 678-561-2785. Listen to Beauty Translated Season 3 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Alec Baldwin. This past season on my podcast, Here's the Thing, I spoke with more actors, musicians, policymakers, and so many other fascinating people, like jazz bassist Christian McBride. Jazz is based on improvisation, but there's very much a form to it. You have a conversation based on that melody and those chord changes. So it's kind of like giving someone a topic and say, okay, talk about this. Listen to the new season of Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Bruce Bozzi. On the last season of Table for Two, we had some good times with some of the best guests you could possibly ask for. Table for Two is a bit different from other interview shows. We sit down at a great restaurant for a meal, and the stories start flowing. We're back for a second season. We'll be breaking bread with Colin Jost, Michael Mann, Divine Joy Randolph, just to name a few. Listen and subscribe to Table for Two on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.